you just have to accept that principle that it is true and it does require a degree of power and leverage to get what you want in this world and a willingness to bet on yourself. We're also drawn in a magnetic, animalistic way to those people who have an undue amount of belief in themselves. At first we dismiss it, then we resent it because we don't possess it, and then we want to be around it. This episode brought to you by WeWork. The way you work has changed. The way you grow your business has changed. WeWork has flexible workspaces built for all the ways you work today, so you can drop in, connect with others, and get to your to-dos. Get out of the house for a few hours and pop by WeWork's co-working space when you need it. Looking to reconnect the team a few times a week? Bring everyone together in an office that fits what they need. Take meetings or offsites around the world from London to LA. Unlock hundreds of locations easily with all kinds of great amenities. They're even dog friendly. Now you can try out your local WeWork for the day for 50% off. To redeem this offer, just go to we.co forward slash behind the brand. Download the WeWork app and use the code behind the brand. Check out by April 15th, 2023 to receive 50% off your booking. This episode is brought to you by my brand new, absolutely free VIP list. Want to get a short note from me each week with what I've learned from interviewing some of the smartest people in the world, the best inspiration, education, access to my private events, special perks, unique finds, free stuff, and a lot more to help you improve your life and business. Get on the list. Just go to behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP. It's an email newsletter. It's as easy as that. One, two, three, VIP, behindthebrand.tv forward slash VIP and get on the list. This episode is brought to you by Vimeo. I've been a pro user of Vimeo basically since I started my production company in 2010. Vimeo is for creative professionals like me, and I use it in several different ways. For example, it's a place for me to upload my videos with a password for my clients to be able to review and download the work I'm doing for them. Uh, there's no compression, crushing of black colors, or oversaturation like what I get when I upload a YouTube video. My clients get the full 4K resolution HD as it was intended. I also use it to host and broadcast live events. I also use Vimeo for my portfolio, case studies, and it never has annoying pre-roll ads. I can create a customized player and keep people on my landing page so they don't get distracted, go down the rabbit hole watching someone else's stuff. What you may not know about Vimeo is that you can use it if you're in HR or if you own a company. You can put all of those onboarding videos all in one place, a nice, tidy, professional-looking uh, playlist or playboard where people can consume and understand or download all the new training videos all in one place. You could also do the same thing if you teach a course. Imagine putting all your videos behind a paywall, charging for it, and then you know, sending people the link with a password. Need a videographer, creative director, or editor? Vimeo lets you post jobs and find creative professionals. There's a ton more options, so I would suggest checking them out. Just go to vimeo.com and see what's possible. Hi, I'm Matt Higgins. I'm CEO and co-founder of RSE Ventures. I teach at Harvard Business School, and I'm an author of a new book called Burn the Boat. I'm on Behind the Brand with Brian Elliott. Hey, everyone. I'm Brian. Welcome to another episode. Matt, welcome. Thanks for having me. I usually ask my guests, how did you get this job? Which job would you like to know about? <laughs> Let's take it way back in the chronology. Okay. All right. You know, a lot of people who watch the show, they are founders, startup founders, freelancers, entrepreneurs, small business owners. Uh, let's take it way back to the beginning. Uh, what young Matt was thinking about when he was thinking about a career, what he wanted to do when he, yeah, he grew I, up? 
So, so the I always try to pick the most important seminal moment, and then for me, uh, if there are children listening at home, you know, turn this off. But dropped out of high school. I grew up in abject poverty in Queens, New York, taking care of my mother who was disabled, uh, but a fighter. And so my earliest memories are selling flowers on street corners and, you know, basically uh, following the Gary Vaynerchuk playbook before mm-hmm. there was Gary Vaynerchuk, scraping gum under tables at McDonald's, anything to survive. Yeah, the hustle. Uh, the hustle. And then um, so – on the one hand, living in abject poverty and and basically, you know, watching uh, my mother sort of fade away and realizing that I got to take matters into my own hands. Uh, and on the other, I found a hack. And it was actually inspired by my mother. She was a high school dropout. And as an adult, she got her GED. And I watched her go uh, to Queensboro Community College okay. uh, and then enroll in college. Uh, as an adult. And when I was becoming increasingly increasingly desperate, that I, one day there was a penny saver, these little free newspapers that would arrive. I remember. Yes. Yeah. And there was an ad and it said, uh, you know, delivering flyers, college students only, and basically paid $8 an hour, uh, which was outrageous back then. I was making three seventy five at McDonald's. And I was like, what is it about a college student that suddenly <laughs> qualifies you to make this amount of money? But whatever it is, I want it. Yeah. And it birthed an epiphany that why don't I um, do what my mother did by accident, but do it on purpose and drop out of high school at 16. And at the time, if you scored well enough on a GD, you could go to any college in America. And so you can imagine what happened when I brought this up to my guidance counselor as young Matt Higgins. And I have a brilliant idea. This institution is a total waste of time because I'm sitting here, you know, working at an overnight deli and, you know, don't sleep anymore. And uh, this doesn't seem to make a whole lot of sense. What do you think about me dropping out? So, of course, they told me I was crazy and I was never going to you know, erase the stigma of being a high school dropout. Mm-hmm. But I did it. Did you have any signals back then? Like, did you have an, an idea of what you wanted to be? Like, um, the direction you wanted to go? Of course, you know, it sounds like you were kind of in sales de facto, but. Yeah, I, I do. As a kid, um, I was always obsessed. Uh, I was always obsessed with justice. Okay. Um I don't know, maybe because I felt persecuted, somewhat abandoned by society. And I would always research. I'd go to the library and I would research these horrible things that had happened throughout history and persecution. I don't know where this came from. So as an early age, obsessed with justice and also uh, I felt very powerless. So I thought I would one day be a politician. I would be president of the United States. That was Mm -hmm. one ambition. But I also loved animals and I thought a veterinarian. Regardless, which I love talking about those two career choices because they show different sides of my personality. One, I would like to be in charge and make the decisions. The other is I, I think I over-indexed for empathy and sensitivity. Yeah. Uh, and adults had disappointed me yeah. my entire childhood. Sure. So animals, they never wronged me. So those are my those are my two career ambitions. I don't mm-hmm. want to be president anymore because it turns out that's not a lot of power in that job. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> it's a lot easier to influence things from from the outside. Fair. Very fair. Um, so you went to law school, I assume? I did. So skipping over big parts, but I went from dropping out of high school at 16 years old. It did work, by the way. Uh, I, I remember telling my science teacher on the last day of uh, high school, you have to return all your books in the equivalent of like an academic walk of shame. You got to mm-hmm. walk in like, Mr. Rosenthal, here's my textbook back. And he, he didn't even miss a beat, did not look at me and said, Higgins, what a waste. I'll see you at McDonald's. This wow. is a true story. You know, people like romanticize. This is actually true. Those listening, I know people tend to create these little narrative arcs around their lives. That actually is true. And I remember telling him to the, something to this effect. If you see me at McDonald's, it's, it's because I own it. 
And like that was who I was as a kid, although secretly believed he was 100% correct. This is probably the dumbest thing I had, I, I had done. But the reason why this was my origin burn the boats moment is that in order for me to stay the course with this crazy idea that uh, that no one supported, I needed to actually sabotage my escape route. Mm -hmm. I needed to ensure that I was – little Matt Higgins was such a write-off to the New York City Department of Education that people would stop trying to convince me to finish. Right. So what I did was uh, got left back. Failed every single class, you know, uh, sat in the back of the same homeroom with the kids wearing the beepers, you know, making very different life choices, right? But all entrepreneurial in our own way. And and by the time I had become 16, <laughs> the focus was more like, how do we get this kid out of our institution rather than how do we keep him in it? That yeah. was my first insight into this I idea of burn the boats. But I dropped out at 16, went to my high school prom as the president of my debate team at Queens College. And within a decade, I'd become the press secretary to the mayor of New York. I'd gone from making three seventy-five an hour to making $100,000 a year. I'm skipping over a lot. Yeah, a amazing, lot amazing. Um, I guess the question I want to ask is, um, maybe for people who are either coming out of school and trying to figure out what it is they want to do, or people who right now in this economy. I kind of love, hate that phrase in this economy. What's your message to them about trying to figure out what to do with their life? I think some people are really good at something and they, they absolutely hate it. Uh, for me, that would be accounting, for example. I, I'm decent with numbers and accounting, but I don't enjoy it whatsoever. Um, at the same time, you know, there's a such thing as a starving artist, right? Uh, what is your advice to those people? Uh, great question. To unpack it a bit, uh, I think we all do a lot of things along the way that we don't want to do. And so my number one advice is uh, you don't have to make a straight line to your ultimate destination. You just have to move, move due north in the general direction of your ambition. So to unpack that, like I didn't want to work at McDonald's as a, as a little kid and scrape gum under the table. Mm -hmm. But I had an early epiphany. If you do a job that nobody else wants – and you do it well and better than anyone else, and you make yourself indispensable, that creates power. I think people tend to use their power the wrong way. They use their power for money, uh, where they should be using power for influence and autonomy over their life. So I think that anyone out there trying to figure out what you want to do, one, have a general sense of where you want to end up, and then build a series of bridges along the way. And as long as you're just moving due north toward there, it's fine. And the way to get from point A to point B to point C, at least the way I did it, was every single moment in time, I made myself indispensable, whatever job, even mm -hmm. though I knew it wasn't the ultimate job. And through that um, indispensability, I created leverage. And I would always use that leverage in an almost mercenary way to move me closer, to make that less abstract. When I was working for the mayor's, I got a job at the mayor's office when I was maybe like 21 years old. And I, I was a good writer. I had been a little reporter for a newspaper in Queens. I actually won all these investigative journalism awards. Carl Bernstein nominated me for a Pulitzer when he was on a board. I can nominate you for a Pulitzer, by the way. It's not hard, <laughs> but it was very flattering. Okay. My point is, I was working in the mayor's office and I was, my job was to take newspaper clippings and put them on a eight and a, eight and a half by 11 piece of paper and walk around city hall at 6 a.m. and deliver them to people. This was not the ultimate destination. However, I was a very good writer and I would ghost write speeches for the mayor too. And when the time came, I said, well, if my work is good enough to do the job behind the scenes, it should be good enough for you to give me the job that it rep represents. And the answer, as it always is, well, young man, wait your turn. Take a seat. There are people in front of you. I said, or, I could quit. And I quit that job. Four months later, they brought me back for the job that I wanted. 
Mm-hmm. I have done that over and over again. The second time I did it, they were like, it's not going to happen. We're not going to bring you back. Isn't it interesting though? Like it, you have to give an ultimatum or you have to usually leave somewhere. Yeah, and- it is annoying. I mean, I say this all the time. Familiarity does breed contempt. It's yeah. just, it is annoying, but we all do it too. If yeah. we're honest, you do it. I do it. I hate it about myself, but why is it that we look anew upon something new, right? Where, yeah. Whereas, and so it is hard. That's why they say if anyone out there and you want to get that job that you haven't had before, it sounds so simplistic, but change your wardrobe. Drop 15 pounds, you know, not because those things matter per se. It's because then people have a reason to see you differently than they saw you yesterday. But society, I think, resists people who are trying to break out of the box because it challenges others to do the same. You know, everyone's always trying to put – it's happened to me my whole life. Like, who are you, Matt, to be running an investment firm? You were a PR person. Or who are you – I went from running a PR for the mayor of New York to chief operating officer of the agency rebuilding the worst terrorist attack in human history, right? Mm -hmm. Like, who are you, Matt? to be able to do that. It's like, well, I have those skills. So I would say to anyone out there, you sort, you already know what you're capable of, but when you become dependent upon the feedback loop, mom, dad, boyfriend, girlfriend, whatever, uh, that becomes a dependency that you're now stuck with. Mm-hmm. Whereas it's a, when you're trying to figure out what you want to do, you always got to start with whatever that internal voice in your head tells you. That's yeah. why I wrote my book, to yeah. hold up a mirror to everybody out there. Yeah. I, I, I uh, studied a little bit in college, those fallacies of logic mm. and appeal to authority is one of them. Which is this idea that, you know, uh, if you've done it before, if you've been doing it since, you know, the 1800s, somehow that gives you uh, more credibility or you're better. But it's not. It's not true. I love this topic. I I talk about it in my book. uh, Some of the really interesting success stories in my book are me talking to founders. And this is my bias. I don't know where it came from. My bias is always to first consider a step change instead of incrementalism. What is a step change? A step change is a complete, you know, jump 15 feet to the right that isn't dependent upon the last thing you did. So, Mm -hmm. for example, why do you have to have a lemonade stand before you can have the $100 million lemonade business? Like, who made these rules? Right, right. So, but incrementalism is to always assume that life unfolds like layers of sedimentary rock. It's so organized. We only see sedimentary rock when we look backwards millions of years. It looks very tidy. But along the way, that's not how it goes, right? So yeah. I always have a bias towards um, towards step changes because I can always redound or revert to the idea of, of incrementalism. But if I never once considered a step change, I never have another opportunity, right? And uh, corporate hierarchies want us to submit to incrementalism because it's easier to organize people in these bands, right? And yeah. So like, not to sound like uh, Oliver Stone, but to sound like Oliver Stone, <laughs> there is a overall vast non-right-wings conspiracy in the universe that's attempting to get you to submit to this hierarchy. Yeah, it's called the status quo. Exactly, the yeah. status quo. It's called efficiency. I get yeah. it. You know, and then the second part about, about familiarity, you just have to accept that principle that it is true and it does require a degree of power and leverage to get what you want in this world and a willingness to bet on yourself. We're also drawn in a magnetic, animalistic way to those people who have an undue amount of belief in themselves. At first we dismiss it, then we resent it because we don't possess it, and then we want to be around it. Yeah, I love that. I will just uh, underscore another lesson too, which is, and I'm sure you can relate, when you're out there moving your bones towards the career, the dream job, or whatever that you want to pursue, I couldn't co-sign that more. I think along the way, too, what I've learned is that figuring out what you don't like, you know, you see it in the in the shop window, and you're like, that's going to look great on me. And you get in there, and the coat's like a little tight under the arm, and you realize the color's not right, or the fabric's itchy, and you're like, well, I thought so, but try it on, and it's not so great. I think it's perfectly okay to, you know, 
Try it on for a, for a season. And uh, if it doesn't fit, take it off. Try something else on. It's a process of elimination. I think a lot of people get stuck in this idea that, you know, they've just got to make this beeline for the there there. And then when they don't find it, there's disappointment and they think they're failing. But like process of elimination is okay. I love this point. We don't, for whatever reason, this point is not spoken of a lot. I think it's Einstein or Edison who had the quote, basically, I haven't failed, you know, 10,000 times. I found 10,000 ways that yeah. will work or whatever it is. Yeah, it's Edison. Yeah. yeah, Edison, right. That is true in life. And I, I speak about it in Burn the Boats too, that I'm perfectly comfortable taking the train to the second to the last stop and saying, no, I want to get off. I'll give you an example. I, I went to law school for four years a night. At one point, I thought I wanted to be a lawyer. But by the time I got around to being a lawyer, I was 26. I was already making more money working for the government, which is hard to do with a huge job than I would be as a lawyer. And again, yeah. money is not the the only proxy. So when I remember I sat down with the partner, I said, I, you know, I just I have a question. Like, <laughs> when I outwork uh, my colleagues, assuming that's the goal, right? You want me to be the best. Um, how long will it take for you to recognize that fact? <laughs> well, young man, <laughs> I hear it. Um, Skadden was the Skadden Arms, one of the best firms in the in in country, no disrespect to them. But it was the answer was 11 years to make partner. But if you're a superstar, you might be able to make it in seven or eight. And I was like, seven or eight years? Like, it felt like suddenly I, I was, you know, you know, I was working in like the USSR, you know, that those words that I had to wait any amount of time, right? Yeah. Like, to me, were, were, so were, were horrifying. So my only point to this story, not only did I not become a lawyer, and did I give back the um, advance, I never took the bar. Because mm -hmm. I never wanted that thought to be in my head that yeah. I might have a plan B of being a lawyer. And I love the fact that I went to law school. I can manage lawyers all day long. There are no wasted experiences. That's the point of the story. Yes. And we have a lot of pressure on ourselves to think, one, that um, you know this was a waste of time. But two, probably more insidious, everyone's going to judge me for being flaky. Yes. That's the thing I think holds a lot of mom and dad yeah. or my, somebody, you know, you're always doing something new. Well, back know. to fallacy. So that, I think they call it the sunk cost fallacy. Right. The sunk cost, my favorite. You just think, oh, well, I've already spent all that time in school and I've spent all this money. I might as well just stick with it and be miserable for the rest of my life. Right. And the, the best <laughs> way for those out there who find themselves stuck in the sunk fallacy decision matrix, which is insidious and will yeah. ruin your life, you, the, the way to fix it immediately is to instead substitute sunk cost with opportunity cost. To be like, wait, if I continue doing this, what am I giving up? And then when you do that, your mind sharpens very quickly. Like, it's not about what already happened. It's about what happens next and how do I get there a lot faster. So fortunately, I'm always wired to be like, I don't really care yeah. what I'm walking away from. So let's stay right on that for a minute. That sort of emotional intelligence, that emotional decision, because burning the boats is scary, Matt. I mean, I mean, sort of. No, well, I'm just kidding. No, it is. It is. We have to acknowledge it's not a safe space. This, even the cover, is a little scary. Yeah. it's on fire. Yeah. Well, we were talking <laughs> off camera of you know, I, you know, I pointed here because I have calluses now because I've been to the gym and I've been doing those pull ups and getting the reps in. Uh, Gary Vaynerchuk is famous for telling me, Brian, you can't fake being good at push ups. You're either good at them or you're not. So get to it, right? Yeah. And so. Uh, when I had to, when I became a founder, uh, had my little startup for the first time, I decided to start right at the beginning of the Great Recession, 08, and it kicked my ass. Um, and it was scary at the time, but like I had inadvertently burnt the boats, like I had no other choice, and I realized my only way through was forward. Um, I have since been to hell and back several times, you know, uh, emotionally with the, you know, building the business and all, all the things. And so it's less scary now, 
But I still remember that feeling very well. And I think for me, I'll put some more context to, to let you weigh in on this. For me, and if I'm really being honest, the guilt I feel today is still putting my family through that. So we didn't sign up for that. I said, hey, I've got this great idea. My wife endorsed it. She gave me you know, full, she's like, I believe in you. Let's go for it together. And we've always thought as a couple, we're going to fail together or we're going to su- succeed together. So, you know, if we're unanimous, let's go. And we've always made decisions like that. You met unanimously. Um, and so we decided to go, but it was, oof, I mean, it was rough ups and downs and, you know, all, you know, 08, 09, 10, 11, about 12, we started kind of getting back to some regularity, but it was, it was tough. So again, with that sort of framing, how do you make what seems so scary uh, doable? How do you do it? Um, okay. A lot to unpack there. Yeah. Uh, first, I wrote this book, Burn the Boats, not for the Kevin O'Leary's, my colleague on Shark Tank, who mm-hmm. don't need to read this book. They're completely self-possessed. Yeah. You know, I, or I didn't write this book for narcissists out there or whatever. I wrote it for, not him, I love Kevin, but but just generally speaking, I wrote it for the people. <laughs> it's ironic that you said yeah, Kevin yeah, and narcissists. Yeah, no, but it's sentence, not. Right? Oh, Kevin's a friend, but you get my point. Fully self-possessed and immunized from, from judgment. Yeah, I, wrote, I know Kevin quite right, well. Right, right, right. I love Kevin. And I wrote this yeah. book for the for the um for the people who if you went on a train station there's a study and you asked everybody on the platform do you have a plan b 48% of the people would say yes right i actually yeah. think there there that's a lie i think that number's a lot higher but i wrote that i wrote this book for those people who are risk adverse yeah. who are worried about what would happen if i do go all in because the phrase is a little bit of a misnomer the idea of going all in on plan a when people hear that and they hear burn the boats, they think that that means that you can't contemplate risk mitigation. And what I'm saying is yes. if the version of you back, Brian, back in the day had when you were about to make that big move, start your company, whatever, and you had done the following. Okay. What's the worst that could happen if it doesn't work out? Right. Let me, let me, let me quantify. Let me catastrophize at the beginning of the journey before I start. Right. Okay. I've now identified it Two. What would I do if that were to materialize? In your case, it would have been like, well, I have so many skills. I'll go back and create a job. It might have been back to the industry you left. It might have been doing what we're doing right now. I don't know what your risk mitigation would be at the beginning of your journey. Three, what's the probability that that this is not going to work out? Let me handicap it, whatever. Usually relatively low that the worst case scenario is going to happen. Four, what would I not do to achieve plan A? When I – and the answer to that should be walk on coals, eat glass, like do whatever – Every big thing I've ever done, go on Shark Tank or teach at Harvard Business School, when I when I went through this decision matrix with risk and fear, the answer to that last question was like, I would do anything to perform well at Harvard Business School and, and, and leave a legacy with these students. I would do anything to do well on Shark Tank and get on that set, right? And so what I'm trying to do with this book is say, plan A, going all in, contemplates, right, that you've already processed the risk. And here's why that matters. What when when you are taking on incoming on plan A, right? It's the subtle like you know, oh, it's a friend who makes the comment that makes you feel like you're being ridiculous. It's this, it's it's the voice in your head that says you're an imposter. Right. It's these these small subtle things that make you then go and try to grab onto a, a plan B. So. Yeah. In my book, I start with the premise that going back to the beginning of time, when we are outnumbered, 100 to 1, all these military generals, every culture, they do the exact same thing. They eliminate their retreat, and they actually destroy their provisions, right? 
But we don't need to be at war to harness that decision-making. What we need to do is to eliminate those things at the beginning of the journey that are going to make you hesitate. So why is that important? There's a study in 2014 out of Wharton that wanted to analyze not what's the, what happens when you have a plan B. What happens when you're allowed just to think about a plan B? Merely contemplate it. What happens to your one um, likelihood of success and to your desire? What they found, just thinking about it. Yes, just thinking about plan B. Um, dramatically light lessens the probability you're going to achieve. But what I found more interesting, it eliminated your motivation. You didn't care about plan A anymore. It, let me, um, again, co-sign that. Uh, I have, so I met Wim Hof. I don't know if you mm -hmm. know who Wim yeah. is. A couple of years ago. And Wim convinced me that a cold therapy was a good thing. <laughs> I'm glad you, not me. <laughs> well, I watch these videos with Jesse Etzler and all these other people. And I'm, yeah. You know. Well, don't give up on it. Yeah. Let me try and persuade you. But no, 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 I like cold therapy. I just don't yeah. want to go hang out with all the guys in the middle of the Antarctic. Oh, yeah. That's fair. So he said, Brian, baby steps. Start with cold shower. And I was like, oh, really? Okay. And then he said, you know, graduate to cold plunging. So in the shower every morning, um, I put it on, you know, a nice temperature that's enjoyable for, you know, getting my, uh, getting the shower done. And then for like the last three minutes, it goes to about as cold as it can be. And it's like, ah, it's always, you know, like that. But the thing that I have learned is I do have a plan. I have a plan B, which is ah, not today. I have an option to do that. But what I've learned is the self-discipline that I don't negotiate with myself. It's like this has been decided. It's been decided. Yeah. That is the that is the the, the words you this has been decided. Yeah. And also, you know, maybe um borrowing a little bit from that atomic habits book that I learned uh is this is who I want to become. It's not about what I do, but this is who I am. So I am someone who takes a cold shower for the last 3 or 4 minutes every day. I am someone who uh, does not eat those cupcakes or that, you know, I've just, I'm trying to be, be someone different. So I totally uh, relate with this idea. I'm sure people who are watching, listening can understand too, but yeah, the degree of success begins to decline when you have plan B in the picture. Yeah. And I think definitions matter. One of the fun parts about um, writing this book is I wanted to put some precision around the words, right? So what is plan A? What's plan B? Plan I is your primary objective, right? Yeah. Right. So you know, let's use somebody out there who wants to be a musician and you have a Monday job that you hate. And you're like, you know what? I'm going all in on my plan A. I'm going to be a musician. I'm going to join a band. I'm going to do everything I can. Here's your plan B. However, should that not work out, I could always work at Bob's Music Store over on Main Street because Bob knows I love vinyl records and have encyclopedic knowledge. So that'll be my now. So Plan B in that case is a way to achieve your subordinate uh, goal. Yeah, I want a new job in the maybe in the music industry, right? Yeah. But 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 it's not your primary goal. So all yeah. Plan B is another way for you to achieve your subordinate goal, but in a way that undermines your primary goal. Yeah, and I, I don't want to overstate it, but I I love that point. I just want to give more permission to people to try things that may not work. Yeah, for sure. I, 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 there's no, that's the point. Somebody asked me the day, here's the other thing. People presume because of the magnitude of plan A that you can only have one. Right. I have multiple plan A's moving in parallel at any moment. Of course, they're just not plan B's. Right? Yeah, yeah, they're not yeah. a subordinate ways for me to achieve the goal. A super like, good point. I wrote a book, but if the book didn't work out, I'll write a newsletter. No, no, no. I wrote a, you know, an effing book. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. I'm going to kill myself writing it. That's an excellent point because, uh, you know, I think we've all done this. We shoot for that plan A and then suddenly uh, another option presents itself and you go, oh, this is actually either pretty good also or better yeah. than what I was planning on. 
And it's sort of serendipitous or lucky you're in the right place, right yeah, time. Yeah, and that's okay. And, uh, totally this, this, okay. And all this, like, because there's, all, again, a lot of dogma and this desire to, yeah. like, you know, be – Emerson has a great line, consistency is the hobgoblin of fools, just yeah. to paraphrase. I love that line, right? Yeah. There's a lot of, like, we're being told in Instagram posts, too, that we have to be consistent and, like, yes, but, you know, uh, well, right? almost, we're not automatons. Like, yeah, and also that we have to be definitive. It's like you're in third grade and you got to decide what you're, uh, what you're getting right. your master's degree in. Right, I, I tend no. to – No, exactly, and I also – so ter- even on habits, I love the book Atomic Habits. Power of Habit is a great book. But I think there's there. I think if I were to put like a, a third subtitle on those books, it would be like only habituate that though, which makes it more efficient to achieve the objective. Right? I resist actually habits when they don't serve a purpose. Some things should be automated: brushing my teeth at a certain time, you know, whatever. But a lot of things shouldn't be automated because then they block out serendipity. So right. I leave. I don't. I try to resist habituation. Like if I do an interview, I don't want to know the questions because I perform better without it. Yes. Like So be careful all those listening out there who beat yourselves up that you can embrace atomic habits or these other things, it's not everything should be habituated. A lot of magic happens in the interstitial between a habit and serendipity. That was a good sentence, right? It sort of just came to me. I love just, it. Just being around you inspires yeah. me. That's going to be like a, a, a TikTok snippet. Or it's, <laughs> exactly. It's going to be the only thing that goes viral. On this exactly. exactly. Yeah. And, you know, back to our friend, our mutual friend, Gary. Gary, I'm full of Gary-isms because he is... Uh, Dropped a lot of wisdom on me personally and in public over the years. But, uh, you know, he told me when I first started, he goes, Brian, you know what your problem is? And this is, I started my production company and I was starting going. And then I had like one foot in like doing consulting. And I, I mean, I was broke, right? Like this was right at 08, right in the inception. And uh, I, I would have worked at Starbucks if I had to. But he's like, you know what your problem is? He goes, you're half pregnant. And as you know, you cannot be half pregnant. <laughs> you either are or you are not. So which is it? Are you all in on this, you know, new company? Or are you just kind of, you know, he said fucking around. Like, so, but that really helped me get clear that I needed to really, you know, put the blinders on a bit to some of the other ancillary things that were maybe short-term money that were not in aligned with my goal. I love that. I, so... For the audience, this is important to me because I'm very close to Gary and we talk all the time. He's my partner now for a decade. We own VaynerMedia together. Um, he is the most unburdened, carefree human that I have ever met. He sleeps eight hours. Um, I am the opposite. So I partly wrote this book. So somebody that's the opposite of that would write a book like this because the rest of us out there who have anxiety, who struggle with imposter syndrome, who have a legacy of shame and trauma from childhood mm-hmm. should be able to, to avail ourselves to burn the boats as well. Mm-hmm. I just want everyone listening to me to understand this book is not what it sounds like. This book is written by somebody who's had to work through the same issues you probably feel if you are inclined the same way mm-hmm. and have had to manage imposter syndrome, who went on the set of Shark Tank and froze and felt like he belonged back in that apartment in Queens eating government cheese, who despite all my success, it's a tortured journey. Gary, Gary would say, if Gary was here right there, Gary would say that I spent more energy on this cover than he did on the, on the, on the company. <laughs> He's like, you put more time, 412 iterations, right? Like, yeah. but that's partly why I want to write this book. Why shouldn't the 48% of people on the platform who have a plan B give, be given the answers to the test? I really feel this. Like, that's why I always say it's my life's work because I'm positive this is the way to achieve success. And I'm positive just because you're in this other cohort where you don't sleep eight hours and you've had issues and you think the die is cast, that this is available to you too. I hope when you read this, you'll come to the end and be like, oh, number one, Matt shared a lot of cringy things I didn't expect. (laughs) And two, thanks for sharing a lot of cringy things because I feel like I see myself in this book. 
Yeah, I love that. Yeah, I just want to make clear because I agree with you on the Gary, but like I'm not Gary. I wish I was Gary, frankly. And I consistently underestimate Gary. It's amazing. I have more data on Gary Vaynerchuk than almost anybody, but maybe his you know close family. And yet I too underestimate Gary. <laughs> like it's just a different animal, you know. I'm just not wired that way. Yeah, he's a moving target, unpredictable. Yeah, he zigs when you think. He's going to zag, yeah. I remember when he sat me down. We had dinner during the pandemic. And he brought me over to his house to show show me these, like, stupid JPEGs, you know, called CryptoPunks. He's like, Matt, I'm telling you, just go ahead and just buy, you know, 10 of these. Like, it's going to work out. And I remember talking to my wife, and we're like, I just don't want to spend this money on this silly thing. Yeah. yeah. Did you do it? No. Yeah. No, of course. This, there would be a different story. <laughs> but I, but again, I put that in the book. Yeah. I put a lot of these things in a book because we, we tend to we tend to summarize failure, but we don't illustrate failure. Mm -hmm. the, one of my favorite parts about this book is that it's it's meant to prove the point of burning the boats and constantly leveling up, right? So it started with two ways in which I was leveling up during the pandemic and leveraging my experience to go further, right? You can relate to this. One was I created a public company. A SPAC during a panda, $200 million, raise an IPO. Next day, I get COVID and have double pneumonia within an inch of my life, right? Like, yay me, the hero's journey, right? The other is I, I created a new show with Mark Burnett, the creator of The Apprentice and The Voice, a Shark Tank spinoff that I loved. And I worked on it for, you know, for months, eight episodes. Like, they were incredible, right? So first, the SPAC dies. The market turns. And I'm like, damn, now I got to rewrite the book to accommodate the SPAC. What year is this? Give us some context. This is last year, 2022. Okay. Yeah. So, so, so. You're right there. So when the market, yeah, now I gave the money back to investors rather than do, you know, I tried to hold true to my principles to do this the right way. And I returned all the money, but it was like a huge hit. A year, and, But it was the opening of my book. And I remember talking to the editors like. I guess we got to take it out of the book. I was like, no, I'll rewrite it. I'll let it stand for failure, right? So then fast forward, my show is about to air on CNBC. I'm so excited. You know, there's a change in management at CNBC, and they move in the direction on all their shows, and now my show is gone. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, now I have to rewrite the start of my book. And then I said, or do I? Or is this the universe trying to tell me, tell me, show what failure looks like, show what resilience looks like by being honest about those two things? So my book now starts with the show that never aired and the public the public company that never went public. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and it's my favorite part. Yeah. Because people read this and, be like, and, and I do think I did something different. Oh, you showed what it looks like to keep going. And I guarantee you, when you have me back, I will be able to trace a direct path to those two happenings that led to something way better than what would have happened if I proceeded. I don't know what it is. I just, that is my, we're in the boats is like, I am convinced something better will happen as a result of that. Yeah. And that I, also could be rationalization, but that's okay. We, we have coping skills. Well, but that, that gene that you're uh, sort of projecting out here is, I have that as well, which is that tenacity gene. Right. Which is, uh, you can't beat me because I'm never giving up. Right. I always say, you know, I don't hold a grudge against anybody. And sometimes people have said, I don't know how you could accommodate that person. And it's like, well, why? I always win. The universe, and I don't win over that person. I win and, and I've won already. Mm -hmm. Like, how could I not win? I have my wife. I like... It's fine. And so I just am capable of holding a grudge for exactly that. You can't defeat me. You're not even in the equation. Yeah. So yeah. why would I be mad at you? Yeah. And you are, you're playing the long game when you do that too, because this is a very small world, right? Yeah. It's so interesting how, you know, we're talking about Gary. I met Gary over a decade ago and yet we're still, you know, he's doing big things. I'm 
doing less big things, but like there's still a Venn diagram that includes us both many times and the people that we know online. And I, I think yeah. I talk about this in a book a lot too, because we all have haters and how do you process them? And it's not that I don't have to, you know, I'm always intellectually curious. It's one of my big vulnerabilities. Gary is not intellectually curious and haters. I look at everything as a data point. So I consider the most vile feedback at just being honest. Cause I'm like, they might have a point. And so, <laughs> so I wish I, I wish I was immunized more from it, but back to how do you treat haters? I, one of my greatest gifts that happened as a result of watching my mother die when I was a kid, um, was this empathy for, for the underdog and for uh, being able to relate at a very visceral level to the single mother who's trying to break through or to somebody dealing with, with disability. Right. So hard. Right. So if I hold a grudge or I allow a hater to penetrate, they will be robbing me of the greatest gift, which is my empathy. So the thing I try to preserve the most is my capacity to feel empathy, even for my enemy. Now, I believe in proportionate, I always joke, you know, proportionate violence is how I say, proportionate, just enough to beat you to a draw, you know, to protect myself, but then to accommodate, uh, you know, a detente, right? Because, mm -hmm. because I want to hold on to my empathy. And I would argue anyone out there, if you want to get through haters, just be empathetic. Like, why do you give a shit? Well, how pathetic that you're spending your time worried about my life when you could be worried about yours. And usually it comes from a place of you making them uncomfortable because they're not challenging themselves, right? Everyone hates that. Stay in your lane so I can stay in mine. Yeah. Well, yeah. And there's the saying, right? Like, no one who's doing better than you will ever say anything to you. It's it always is. the people. It really is true. That lobster's you know. in a bucket idea where, you know, everyone's trying to grab the lobster trying to escape above them down right. back into the bucket. The reason why I talk so openly and hear about vulnerability and all these other issues, because even though we we say that intellectually, like that point, right? Like no one who has doing great things is going to care about you. First, those messages don't last very long, though. Like we hear them, they help us, they're soothing. And then we go back to our foxhole. And we're like, why are they hating on me? <laughs> so I, I actually think modeling is how we learn storytelling. It's why in this book, uh, Burn the Boats, I've tried to model rather than than tell, because I don't, I don't think they stick. You know what I mean? Like yeah. we all can recite these little parables, but like, do they really resonate? Stories resonate. Yeah. Uh, slide me the book for a second. Sure. Uh, I just maybe want to spur some um, thoughts with you. Uh, talk to me about the crisis, you know, analyzing the crisis, embracing the crisis. Talk about the crisis. So, yeah, I mean, it's, it's, I've found myself at the intersection of many um, crises uh, over time. I was the mayor's press secretary on 9 11. Yeah. So, a small crisis. Small yeah. crisis, yeah, I right. Want to minimize that. Right, right. So, so I did learn a lot almost everything I ever need to know on crisis management from those 90 days yeah. from when the plane first struck the tower uh, to, uh, to the end of the year when I worked for the mayor. And then I ultimately went and helped oversee the rebuilding of the trade center. But the, the one thing that, um, this is Rudy Giuliani uh, 1.0. So for you youngins out there, don't remember, you find us hard to believe there was a time when, when Rudy Giuliani was America's mayor and was celebrated before Borat. Yeah. Before Borat. So I mm -hmm. choose to remember that period. Uh, yeah. and my politics are very much on the internet. So you can find out how I handled, you know, Donald Trump when he came around, but, but, but there was a version back in the day. What he always did, even before 9-11, because there were multiple different, you know, massive tragedies when you run the city of New York. There was a plane crash when I was uh, with him as press secretary. He always placed a premium on showing up and projecting strength as soon as humanly possible and with great proximity to what just happened, right? Mm -hmm. So it wasn't just about doing a, it was never about doing a press conference in a room. It was about being on the ground and showing, showing strength, which was very soothing. And so on 9-11, uh, when the first um, uh, uh, tower collapsed, I was standing on the corner of church and park 
for those who know, it's a couple of blocks from the trade center. It was, you know, you, everyone had already evacuated. And and I always remember, why why was I there? And I was there because, we one, we didn't understand the magnitude of what just happened. Nobody did in this fog of war. But two, is the mayor was, you know, projecting strength. So first rule of crisis management is to is to just show up. Mm-hmm. So show up for yourself and show up for others. And then the second, um, the laws of physics apply just as much to crisis management as they do to gravity and anything else is that every action has an equal and opposite reaction. So when you're in the crisis, uh, it will open up a portal to a parallel universe with something better has happened. Now, that's hard when we're talking about life or death. But for most of the situations we find ourselves in, a crisis will always open up a portal to a parallel universe where you can extract value from it. So you need to hold on to your faith and belief that something's out there. But it isn't about serendipity. It isn't about happenstance. You have to look for it. So whenever I find myself in a crisis, I talk about this in a book. Milk Bar is one of my brands for those of you out there who know Christina Tosi. You know, all of our retail cl- uh, shops, we had just opened our flagship in New York. And now overnight, it's like everyone in America, it's gone, right? Mm-hmm. And I remember talking to Christina Tosi, and we were like flailing to get these stores reopened. Like, how do we reopen stores? How do we reopen stores? And we had this epiphany in one of our conversations. That Why are we trying to reopen stores? Shouldn't our, our, our paradigm be, if we were to launch Milk Bar today, what company would we create? Not just in the middle of the pandemic, but just at all. And said, well, we would create a company that was largely driven by consumer product goods at, at supermarkets. And we'd be leveraging the fame of Christina Tosi to help drive sales there because it's just more efficient than having stores everywhere. And so I talk in a book about how that changed our paradigm. So with a crisis, the last part of a crisis thinking is if you were to start whatever it is you're starting today from scratch, now that your world has been leveled, yeah. what world would you build? Yeah. Yeah, it reminds me of another question um, Seth asked me, which is, um, what would you do if you knew you would fail? Which is a spin on, you know, what would you do if you knew you couldn't fail? Mm. But it's this idea of going back to what you originally said, which is maybe even mapping out, writing down, journaling, like all of these worst case scenarios or, you know, what you... It's the same thing. Yeah, what you may think is way out there, but like you begin... To open up the possibility, And I think people don't do that because they're afraid to get the answer. And that's because they don't value their own their own inspirations. Here's what I mean by that. Yeah. In real estate, there's a phrase, there's always another better house coming on the market next week, right? And it's always very, you, I always reject that. I don't know anyone out there who's ever bought a house and then their broker tells you that. And you're like, be quiet. This was the <laughs> best house they're ever yeah. going to be. It doesn't apply. And then the next week you're like, oh shit, there was a better house. When we have epiphanies at three in the morning, we are so worried. We're so happy and motivated to have that epiphany and insight. We're like, we recognize it's something great. We're afraid to pressure test it for two reasons. One, we want relief from the situation we're running from and we desperately need it. But two, we don't believe we're going to have a better idea. And I always say, if you are capable of having a, an idea good enough to pursue, you're capable of having a better idea. And so why is that important? If you are willing to accommodate the possibility that this isn't it, It'll, you're willing then to, to pressure test it with the risk matrix that I just went to. Mm-hmm. What if it didn't work out? What would I do if it didn't? And I think the reason why we often don't pressure test and ask those questions is we don't want to be rejected by ourselves. And so then we begin, and then we didn't ask them. 
We didn't we didn't consider opportunity cost. Then a couple of years down the road, you're like, ugh, this wasn't really worth it. And by the way, if I had only known that everything else around me would change, you know, whatever the reasons are, right? So I think it's so important to have the willingness to pressure test your own ideas and ask with a assess question, right? What would you do if it if it didn't if it didn't work out, right? If it failed. Yeah. I also ask people another question, which is a similar but different. Um, if this is to, if this were not to work out, what will have been the reason? People know the reason why their plan A doesn't work out. And by identifying at the beginning of the journey, forecasting future self, looking back, you're able to go back in time and fix it, right? Well, if it didn't work out, it's because I never overcame the fact that I am so afraid of judgment that I can't, whatever the, or I have a partner who undermines me every step of the way. And they're going to, they're going to make it impossible for me to fight a two front war. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, maybe add I to- love this conversation, by the way. I oh, love too. going deep. Like we talk too much about um, things and doing and not enough about thinking where I think most of the progress is made, right? These sort of abstract thoughts to try to articulate them, make it easier for people to understand. So, yeah, uh, I'll, the, the privilege and benefit of doing this show for me is the fairy dust that rubs off of people like you onto me. I learn a little bit each time. Makes me think of what I learned from uh, NFL quarterback Russ Wilson. Mm. Uh, you know, not an East Coast team. I know you're East Coast yeah, Jets, and but I, I'm aware of who he is. <laughs> uh, and, and Russ, Russ taught me the benefit of. He said, you know, I go to the gym every day and I get physical fitness. He goes, but not a lot of people think about mental fitness. And you know, he had he had that famous uh, mental coach, uh, Trevor, mm-hmm. who ended up passing away, unfortunately, of uh, a brain tumor, but. Uh, it makes me think about business too, how important the emotional, uh, the physical, you know, all of the tactics matter. But but what we're talking about here is sort of the emotional or or mental part of it. It's so important. The big takeaway from the book, if you re- uh, those who read it uh, beginning to end, you'll say the big takeaway is about how self-awareness is the greatest arbitrage entirely in our control. Mm-hmm. And when we're looking for ARB, in business, we tend to look for it from external factors, find a hack, find an edge. Uh, but we rarely consider that you are the greatest ARB. And and I say to every leader that I interact with, and I say to myself, like, before I look for an external variable that I can manipulate, manipulate yourself, right? And But easier said than done, we have to create climates where self-awareness is, right, is, is appreciated. My favorite story in the whole book tells uh, of an Irish bartender named Aidan Kehoe. And I had bought his cybersecurity company. Uh, and this guy had gone from a bartender to like an insurance broker to founding a, a cybersecurity company. Okay. I bought it. Strange a, path. A strange path. But but that gives you a sense of his personality, force of nature. In his 30s, gregarious, smart, good judgment. Anyway, as time went on, though, we took on investors and the holes started showing up, the cracks, the crack in the business model, the crack in his management style, you know, all the cracks. And he, because he had a, mar- I go through the different archetypes of leadership. His was a martyr. There's a okay. martyr type, there's a martyr type cast, which yeah. believes I am just going to take it all on myself because I'm the only one that can do it. Now, martyrs usually have a reason for behaving that way. They don't want to deal with conflict. You know, it's different from victims. Victims, they're being persecuted. Martyrs are preordained to do your work for you, Mm -hmm. but it's usually because they don't want to scale their leadership or deal with conflict. Anyway, long story short, Aiden um, is brought to his knees by these cracks, and he calls me one night crying, um, and he goes, I failed you. I'm so sorry, but... Um, I'm going to, you know, step aside at the end of the year. And mm. at the moment that he called me, I, there's a beeping noise in the background. And I'm like, well, where are you? He's like, well, I'm in the hospital. I'm, 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 I'm evaluating my daughter for seizures. And I was like, first of all, Aiden, you need to hang off the phone 
and shut down for as long as you take and deal with what you're dealing with. I said, second of all, though, I know when somebody's finished. I was like, I've been waiting for this phone call. <laughs> We're going to go to work. The story tells a journey of how Aiden goes from that moment when life brought him to his knees. He now contemplated the worst thing that could happen that was making him be a martyr. All right, so what? The company goes to zero. I'll figure it out. I'll go be a bartender, right? A different version of him came back. He embraced self-awareness, went through this exercise with this industrial psychologist that I use all the time. And we go from what could have been a zero to about 19 months later, he sells the business for nine figures. And that to me is the power of, of self-awareness. But in order to unlock Aiden, I had to be willing to talk about my divorce, talk about my cancer, that I have one testicle and what that meant as a man, everything I've gone through in my cancer journey. And I put it in the book mm -hmm. so that anybody, if you're reading the reason I put those cringy details is so that I'm trying to create space for vulnerability and then self-awareness. Yeah. Uh, so let me ask you this. These are pretty firm beliefs that you have now. Uh, what is one of these, you know, strongly held beliefs that you had maybe five years ago, or go back as far as you want in the chronology, five, eight, 10 years that, you know, you were rock solid on then, but you are no longer there now. So good question. Mm -hmm. I don't think anybody's ever asked me that. Um, that it's all on me. I was 100% convinced in my 20s that the path to my success will be give me the ball. You know, and I can't count on anyone. Everyone is disappointed in me. Mm -hmm. Society won't save you. Yeah, it's an extreme version of being an agent in your own rescue. But now it was like, be I'm the only one on the team, completely yeah. living in isolation, right? And let's let's make that. I love that clarification. That's really important. I want to just underscore it. Mm -hmm. Say that one more time. So, you know this this I don't want to be a victim uh, script. I mean, that's my script too. But it's different than, you know, not being willing to take on help or assistant assistance when it makes sense. Yeah. I Those are two different things. Totally. Like when, when I am, um, and to illustrate it, when I had, when I got cancer, diagnosed with cancer, you know what I was worried about? I wasn't worried about death. And I was a little worried about not being there for my kids, of course. But what I was mostly worried about was that the people around me would discover my vulnerability and they would take me out like a wounded animal. Mm. And I did everything I could to demonstrate that I was not defeated, including showing up to a dinner with all the coaches the day after surgery with an ice bag around my testicle, my oh, remaining geez. one, <laughs> just to be very graphic, but to make the point of how ridiculous this is. And I went to a dinner and, you know, everyone's looking at me, me thinking I'm heroic, right? They're thinking, what the F, right? And I said to the group, hey, I want to make a toast to my new motto, which I just put on dog tags to arrive soon. I'm no longer Matt Higgins. I'm half the balls, twice the man. <laughs> now, now, in my 20s, I was probably 20s, I don't you know, 32 at that time. What a tough story. Shows grit. Mm -hmm. Now I look back at that and say, that shows you how insecure you were that you couldn't depend on anybody, that you really thought no one would even accept that you had cancer. Literally, this was as vivid and clear to me as you sitting here, that yeah. no one would accept that I had cancer. Yeah. Right? Or and, you were somehow less than. That I was left, that was the beginning of my unraveling, that also that the universe would not allow me to have any failability. And so it wasn't actually until I got divorced, which I talk about in the book, that I, I, that I had no choice but to wear my perceived failure. 
And I realized my entire identity was constructed around the idea of being successful early, youngest press secretary in history, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And now all of a sudden I couldn't, I, couldn't, I couldn't leave it behind. And that actually spurred an awakening and a, and a reframing of even that story when I was a young manager thinking, wait a second, if you worked for me at the time and you too were going through a divorce and your boss had testicular cancer and he's back in the office the next day, you now have to suppress your divorce because it doesn't compare to losing a body part objectively. Right. Imagine what kind of leader I was. And so to your point, the firmly held view I had was that the path to my ultimate success is going to be to shoulder as much responsibility as I can. And now look at Gary, the Gary Vaynerchuk story. Fast forward several years later, I meet this crazy guy in a bagel store in 2009, Gary Vaynerchuk, and he's telling me how the future is going to be and, mm -hmm. you know, and everyone's going to be their own. You probably met him at the same time. Well, that was the thank you economy. It's timing, I think. Okay, right. So, yeah. so 2009. Right after Crush It. Right. Yeah. So he's a huge Jets fan. I'm running the New York Jets business, right? And we meet at the bagel store. And I... I, I look past the uh, the swagger and the bravado and the, and the cursing and everything and be like, I think he actually has a crystal ball. And if I could ride along with him and just play a small role in Gary Vaynerchuk's life, good things are going to happen. And I gave him four Jets tickets to be the first client. Other people claim this, but I'm going to claim it right here. I was the first client of VaynerMedia to hell with anybody else who wants to compete. I gave him four Jets tickets. And then I went back when I partnered with Steve Ross. We went and we, we bought a significant majority, minority stake in the firm. And that firm is now the largest independent agency in the world. That's not Matt Higgins. I didn't build VaynerMedia. I didn't create the largest firm in the world. I met somebody magical, and I decided to play a subordinate role to that person mm -hmm. and help them and look at great things happen. So the greatest unlock in my career was to submit to the greatness of others. And that's why when I look at you, I'm full of delight. Like, oh, you're so fit. You're doing great. I'm so happy for you. This show is amazing. Like, <laughs> honestly, I feel like almost emotional glee now when I see other people succeeding. And when I find a little bit, maybe a little trajectory change that I might be able to help, hence the reason I wrote the book, it almost makes me want to pass out. It's so exhilarating. Yeah. Whereas before, I wasn't receptive to it. I know that was a long speech, but like it, it, it I makes, wrote this book it makes so sense. I could scale these human interactions and maybe hold up a mirror to other people about what they're capable of, yeah. which is completely different than how I behaved in my 20s and 30s. Yeah, I mean, you're telling this story of a completely different life from mine, but yet it does sound very familiar. The whole putting up walls or putting up armor, you know, or putting up a facade, fronting, you know, all of these things I think are going to be very familiar uh, things to people. Yeah. And uh, it's the exact opposite of what we should be doing. <laughs> you know, right. We should be, you know, willing to have the self awareness to be vulnerable enough to, you know, be honest with ourselves, with others. This is the pathway to success, right? This is the way, as they say. And be delighted when you encounter somebody who's better than you. I always say to Gary, I love having you in my life because you're just better than me. And <laughs> like so many things yeah. that I like to know that you exist so that I can aspire. Yeah. I mean, yeah. isn't it wonderful? Right? It's wonderful. Like, yeah. oh, something better is out there. I should just keep pushing. Well, but this is, you know, When you did, when you said in the beginning that you were trying to take on the world, I mean, th again, that's relatable. When you start a business, you're you're doing everything. You are uh, running the business, but you're also taking out the trash, and you're you know you're hiring, firing, but you're also vacuuming the the carpet, and you're picking up. I mean, you're just doing everything, and yeah. so uh, that becomes kind of a a, a pattern. 
But but let's but let's contextualize it in the version of a business because I do see founders make this mistake where they go wrong is that they define the job as being it's all on them, whereas a divine the job eventually you transition from a founder to a catalyst. You're just trying to catalyze things and 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 you need people to catalyze things. So yeah. that incredible employee that unlocks everything. I find I talk about this in a book. There's a certain archetype of a leader that is a victim, and they believe that it's on them unjustly, mm-hmm. and they because they don't have you know, whatever time and to just, they could do everybody's job better than they can. And they become competitive with their employees. Those businesses don't scale. Yeah. You know, this show is called behind the brand. We talk a lot about brands, branding. What is the Matt Higgins brand? Hmm. Is, I think that my brand is overcoming impossible odds with um, tenacity, Mm -hmm. but with vulnerability and empathy. And I'm always an unfinished work. All right. So that's a lot for a brand, but that's just, well, now I'm the burn the boats guy too. So, okay. So if you know who you are, you have this, um, heightened or, you know, heightened self-awareness. We are talking about leadership, starting your own company. Who is the first hire that you need to make? How do we, you know, you, I, I think I heard you say, or read what you wrote about, most businesses, you know, you have about a 50-50 chance of success uh, within the first couple of years. You know, those first couple of years are the formative years of your of your company. A lot of companies fail within the first couple of years. If you've gotten it right after year three, four, five, you're, you know, you're on a good trajectory. But we can't do it alone. Who should be our first hire? Who should we be thinking about? Yeah, um, I talk about this in the book, trying to trying to break down these core competencies that need to be occupied in any well-functioning company. Yeah. And they can be sometimes performed by the same person, yeah. but they should be identified so that mission creep doesn't happen. So, so simply put, there's the visionary, which is always the founder, has to be a visionary by definition. And actually, when I see sometimes business school students trying to intellectualize themselves, their way into a problem because there's a giant TAM, you know, addressable market there, those don't work out because you don't have the heart, right? You're just, you're just, it's like you're trying to make it a math equation. There's the visionary. There's the catalyst, right? Which I would argue is is probably the second uh, hire or the partner, the co-founder, mm-hmm. right? Define catalyst. So, and it could be a, a visionary too. A catalyst begins to start putting all the pieces together. A catalyst sets the thing in motion, right? Because sometimes you can have a visionary, you know, a Steve Jobs or an Elon Musk, right? But they don't have the core competency skills or the uh, operational skills to put all the pieces in place. So Mm -hmm. if you are not somebody that is a catalyst because you're a dreamer, but you have audacity and you have the convening power and you have the ability to raise money, there are a lot of people who are visionary and have those incredible skill sets. They can get money in. They can get people to give a shit. They're good. You know what I mean? But they're, but they're, but they're not a catalyst, right? A catalyst. This is the person who starts, you know, they might, they might be the, uh, the showrunner, you mm-hmm. know, if we were talking about a, a you know, a TV show, right. Mm-hmm. And the catalyst, then there's the exe- uh, executors, right. And those are important to identify because in a, in a company that doesn't value those people who execute, then they start wanting to be the visionary or the catalyst, right. They resent, they resent, they resent that nobody values that, you know, right. right? And then they, well, I can be a dreamer, you know? So, yeah. Uh, well, but let's also say in the same sentence that, not everyone's cut out to be an entrepreneur. No, no, not at all. So I'm just doing in a case when I think there's way too much fetishes, fetishizing of, uh, of being an entrepreneur. It doesn't yeah. make sense. It's very invalidating to all these other people who do great things. And it's like, I don't want to run a company. Yeah. And the reality is um, we're, 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 we're perpetuating a lie because most entrepreneurs are going to fail. 
But not because their idea was bad, because they weren't cut out to be an entrepreneur. Yeah. But we're like, we can't even say that in this culture, right? Like now everyone's got to have a shot. So yeah. I don't know. I think it's a shark tank. <laughs> right. And I feel like it's doing a disservice to everybody. So I, 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 I try to break down in the book um, and uh, like, what does it take to have a, a, a business idea that is actually worth going after? And where do you find it? Mm-hmm. And Shark Tank perpetuates this myth that all businesses are like a patent or, or an invention. And that's actually not true at all. If you think about the best companies that we are in our lives every day, let's just use like an Airbnb or an Uber. That wasn't an invention. That was an insight. In the case of Airbnb, it'd be people might want to sleep on my futon and I could charge them. It's weird as that would sound. I'm going to have a stranger at my house. They're going to steal my shit. Yeah. But Do like, you know the story behind yeah, that? Yeah, yeah. Brian Chesky and, and, and all he was sleeping at his buddy's house right on the futon. Well, it was, but, all, it was the Democratic National Convention. Actually. Oh, was it? Okay. That, I don't know that level of it. was the tipping point. It was the tipping point? Yeah. yeah. There was no space for people to stay. Well, that's interesting. And so they saw this opportunity and, and seized it. But I love Airbnb as a, it's a, what, a hundred billion dollar company. And yeah, if you take it, a little, and, and then what it's great about the insight is like somebody, somebody, and I call this a proprietary insight, an insight all your own because of some type of environmental context or some data that you sit in the middle of. Brian had some context and his co-founders about that people might want to rent your futon or your room. Um, but that's not an invention, right? So there, there are, we all sit in a stream of data or context based on our environment where we could identify a proprietary insight about how the world could do things better. Mm-hmm. And that can become a business. So I do believe, again, to the point of this, not everybody should be an entrepreneur. Not everybody's cut out to be an entrepreneur. But every one of us has a proprietary insight that could be the genesis of either a business or a promotion. I use another example in the story. Michelle Cordero Grant worked at a company called Victoria's Secret. Right, and yeah. of course, and she she was doing marketing. And she felt like Victoria's Secret wasn't speaking to a, a lot of women who wanted to just feel good about themselves, not for a man. And there was a missing voice in the market. And she's like, let me test my theory. So she you know, puts together a, an online community to talk about what words would you use to describe, you know, uh, your, your, your undergarments and blah, blah, blah. Anyway, long and the short, she launches Lively based on the proprietary insight that Victoria's Secret is not speaking to a huge portion of the market. Not an invention. You find white space. Right. She sells it for $100 million. Yeah. So while I'm saying two slightly contradictory things, while everyone's not meant to be an entrepreneur, everybody has a great idea that could lead them to being an entrepreneur or at least get a promotion. Yeah. And, and I'll take it one step further. I think everyone should be thinking about some sort of side hustle. Agreed. Right? Well, it's also enlivening. Yeah. That's why. That's my point. It's why I don't think this is useless information for those out there saying like, oh, I'm good, Matt. I got my nine to five job. Cool. But if you want to feel really good about yourself, it is fun. How many ideas do you come up with that you never bother pursuing because they're not worth your time? A but thousand. I, but I love yeah, them. I, little, I cradle yeah. them and I'm grateful that I have the insight because I'm like, you know, that could be a business. Yeah. And I, and I like to be intentional about not pursuing them because when I see them on an infomercial or I read about them in Fast Company, I'm like, shit, I had that idea. But I don't regret it because I dismissed it and decided not to pursue it. Yeah. Right. Yeah. I'm thinking of one in particular invention that I had like when I was a teenager that Oh, but then I cringe at some of the ones I like, I actually pursued. I'll give you one really quick crazy one when I was with the Jets and I wanted to like be an entrepreneur and, you know, whatever. I was impatient. This is where your worst ideas come from when you're running from a situation. And I was convinced that iPad, because it had the, whatever it was called, the capacitator or whatever. I'm going to make this up like from uh, where you could put your fingers on. Oh yeah. Yeah. You know what I mean? And and I said, here's an idea for a business. It's a subscription business. When you have little toddlers, you put your hand on the iPad screen and you get custom gloves on a subscription model. Right. And like, and now I can do it because of the iPad. Right. Like I I went far down the rabbit hole. This was a not good idea. (laughs) Yeah. 
<laughs> but technically, kind of smart, right? Like, okay. but there are lots of reasons why it isn't worth your time. You know, yeah. customer acquisition, whatever. Utility blah, blah, blah. is not really right. There. So, but I'm grateful I had that insight because it's getting reps, right? Yeah. Now, I, one time I actually had another epiphany, which is when you look at uh, stadiums and you see all these empty seats on the lower bowl, right? Like, why can't we create a product where you, and at the end of the first quarter, you can spend ten bucks and upgrade down, right? That's a good idea. Now, in this case, I made the mistake of building a business and launching it. It was called Leap Seeds. Also had the wisdom to shut it down, realizing this is a feature of somebody else's business. Uh But I don't regret those, nor should anyone listening. Just know when it's worth pursuing and know when it's not. Back to our original point about opportunity cost. Opportunity cost will help you say, hey, Matt, do you think this toddler glove idea is really going to – when you are happy in your new life because you got a new job, you think you're really going to care about it? And the answer was, was no. Yeah. So I'm just curious, is it easier now that you have, you know, maybe some more money in the bank and you have some experience, you know, wisdom, is it easier to start something now or was it easier to start something back when you had nothing, when the distance to fall was so low? I mean, we've talked about how uh, metaphorically low it is now still because you, you give zero Fs about it. I mean, you have more, you know, confidence and you have more affirmation or whatever, but is it easier now or was it back then to start something new? I think it's a little harder now because I need more pieces in place because okay. I'm not willing to pay the price that it requires entirely at the inception. Whereas when you're starting with nothing, you are willing to pay that price. I'm not willing to pay that price anymore. Yeah, because you have several businesses. You I have several businesses. Boats in the I have water. my children. Yeah. I'm getting older. I'm on the clock thinking about mortality. Like my time horizon has been compressed, right? Mm-hmm. Theoretically, I could die when I walk out of here. Yeah. But I know I'm going to die in a relatively foreseeable time frame, which is less than when I was 20, right? Yeah. So actuarially, uh, my decisions are running through that prism. And so it actually is a little harder now. I have more capacity to convene the pieces in place to make it happen. So at any moment, right now, I'm I'm incubating two businesses as we speak. Yeah, I'm just not. I have a CEO that's doing one of them. Yeah, you know what I mean. I'm I'm partners in another, and I'm not the principal partner. So the conditions are different than what they would have been. Yeah, I mean you're more you're the conductor instead of playing the French horn. Exactly, but 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 I'm still launching new. Gary V uh, and Eric Wattenberg and I we just created a production studio for unscripted television. It's a new company. It needs an operating agreement. We had to come to terms. Get the capital. Steve Ross supplied the capital. I mean, like, so I'm always doing it. It's just, I, the sad part is like, I would never now launch something myself. Presumably it's very hard to go back to some people do do it. It's just, I'm not that person, you know, that goes back in time. Yeah. But the progression makes sense. You're, you still are kind of, um, you know, doing new things. You're just well, doing the, the book. I mean, the book, way. the book is the, one of the most emotional, arduous things I've done. Cause I allowed myself to care dangerously too much. You know, I haven't cared about a project as much as I care about this book, maybe ever. That's a very vulnerable place to be. So the act of doing new things still happens. It's just, I, I, I wouldn't like launch a business on my own. Mm-hmm. So there's a saying, I talk about a lot about it, which is, you know, people will say, uh, failure is not an option. And I've just realized how ridiculous that is. So ridiculous. Yeah. I mean, you, you you can't do anything uh, and expect not to fail. I mean, that's the pathway yeah. to success, right? So um, talk about some of your failures. And I think it's important in the context, which is, you know, our failures brought us here, right? This is how we got here, whether it's, you know, stumbling and, you know, getting beat up or we're in the arena, whatever metaphor we want to use. But like, talk about some of the failures and what you learned from it to get you here. 
Yeah, I, I love your point about failure is not an option is ridiculous. Like people will conflate the idea of failure is not an option with all in on plan A, right? Burn the boats. Burn the boats does is not that you don't contemplate failure. It's that you just don't contemplate an alternative way to relieve the emotional pain of being all in on something, right? That is what studies show. They studies show that plan B is a way for you to relieve the emotional pain of having all your heart and soul into something. But I think we generally perpetuate a lie around failure and that we we have like we we simplify it and we act like failure is a, is is objectively a good thing. Failure is not an objectively a good thing. It's a thing that must be accommodated and learned from. So my process for and I talk about this in the book some of the most successful people I've met is that the the number one thing you have to do like triage when you have a failure is to protect the ego to protect your self-worth. And what I found the most successful people, when they, and I talk about this in the context of Michael Rubin in the book, he's a CEO of Fanatics, $20 billion company, one of, one, of, one of the best entrepreneurs out there. When he has a setback, he simply uh, expands the definition of what ultimate success looks like to accommodate that setback, no matter how big. And I found the people who have the most outlandish breakout success that you can't even imagine do the same thing. Wait, so you're saying yeah, that so, it's pre-programmed in there. Right, exactly. It's, yeah. And now another word for that might be delusional, but it works because it's protecting the ego and the self-esteem. So when they have a win, they get larger. They it enhances their sense of self-worth, self-esteem, right? Yeah. But when they have a setback, it doesn't penetrate. If there was like a blood-brain barrier of esteem, yeah. it doesn't penetrate the blood-brain barrier. And what they do is they say like, no, no, that's great. That's just, I'm just going to leverage that and uh, it's going to lead me to a better place. Yeah, I, 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 I have underestimated, and I'm just thinking about it right now in my own experience, how valuable sort of mapping that all out in advance, you know, um, because as I'm thinking about my failures, what I'm most embarrassed about or ashamed of is it caught me off guard. I didn't expect oh, it's it. It's so funny. That's the number one thing I'm obsessed about. I always say, was this knowable? The right. reason why I do an autopsy on everything I've gotten wrong was not because I can't handle the hit. I wanted to know, could I have foreseen it? Right. And could I have avoided it? Because that's the utility of it. Yeah. And, and so what I used to beat myself up on when I quit my perfectly great job at the studio and decided to, to jump off and do my thing, I have since kind of mentally done that. But now that you mention it overtly like this, I think I'm going to start incorporating the practice of writing stuff out so that it's like I've already kind of mentally planned for it. I have like a, you know, okay, if this, if this, then this, I don't know what kind of diagram you call that. Right. It's like, you know, this flow chart kind of like, <laughs> if yes, then this, if no, then that. And it's like, you know, you have all these plans, but. And I, and I do try to make a distinction between outlandish success of some like the billionaire level or the whatever level, the Steve Jobs level that actually does not even accommodate. It doesn't even penetrate. I'm not that person. And that's not what I, I think that's too much for most of us. Yeah. My process is a little bit different when I have, when I, I have that failure. Um, number one thing I, I do is I acknowledge it because saying it out loud takes away its power. And yeah. we bypass this, right? Yeah. Like, all right, I failed. Yeah. It's actually really, it's like a relief. It's like when Aiden calls me and says like, I'm defeated. Then you're like, all right, well, you're not. The rebuilding can begin. The second though is to ensure that I do not allow my identity to become enmeshed with that failure. I am not a failure. And I, that requires a degree of self-talk in the third person. Like right. you've done all these great things, whatever it is you're not. But then three is the autopsy. And that's the part that I see some people with outlandish success who probably under-index maybe for, for self-awareness. They don't actually do this. I do an autopsy to determine, was it foreseeable? Now, this the harsh answer 
is 90% of the time it was foreseeable. The, th- the reason why I ultimately failed was, was apparent at the beginning of the journey. And maybe I'm being hard on myself. I'm just being honest. Mm-hmm. And, and, but the utility of, of, of accepting that, one, it means that I am at the center of everything I do, right? It, it, I, I retain my agency and my personal power right. by saying that it was my fault. Yeah, the common denominator in all of my failures is me. It's me, it, but it's fucking true. But, the, but <laughs> like, the success is also the same. That's what I'm saying. So the success, I'm also at the epicenter. Yeah. But when I, when I do my autopsy and I determine w- at what point was it knowable, that is the most useful part of dissecting failure because the next time around, I'm, I my, I'll have muscle memory and be like, oh, there it is again. You're ignoring the fact that that jockey is not suited for this business, but you decided it's such a good idea that the power of the idea will eclipse a weak jockey, but that's never true. The reverse is only true. That's a common fact pattern for me when I failed. It's like, damn, I knew you didn't have it in you. <laughs> you know. <laughs> so that's number three. But then number four, and I'm not great at this. Gary, Gary would be great at this. Uh I bury it in the desert and I never go back to pay my respects again. Mm-hmm. Right. I, like I, I try to not, but I, I know that this is the right process. You know, the part that I don't like about Instagram and everything we tell people, failure is great. Failure is like, that doesn't ring true. Successful people don't embrace or are not excited about their failures. It comes at a heavy toll. So like, I just think we're perpetuating a lie. I'd rather advocate for my process than advocate for like a paradigm, you know, mm-hmm. or a parable. Mm-hmm. You know, it just doesn't, it's not true. Yeah. Going back to what you said in the beginning, how these memories sort of haunt you, I think um, that's another good lesson to extract, which is, we tell ourselves stories, right? And some stories are worth keeping and carrying along with us, and some are worth, you know, letting go, burying out in the desert. Uh, yeah, forgiveness is a really important part of failure, too. Like, you yeah. really have to. Because the other point, um, if you, whatever charity, whatever whatever empathy you deny yourselves, you will deny to others. You can't be a good leader if you're, uh, you can't extend that to others if you don't extend it to yourself. You'd be the rare, you'd be, you'd be like the Jesus figure, right? Yeah. So you have to remember like, what am I denying myself? Because you're denying people around you and then you're a bad leader. So if you can't forgive your own failures, you won't forgive other people. Yeah. And that back to holding a grudge thing, it's, um, it's poison, right? It is. Even though I will say to this day, you know, however many years I've been out of high school, I remember Mr. Hamblin, who was the head basketball coach, who looked me in the eyes and told me, you're too short. <laughs> Don't even bother trying for the team. Even though I get all the three pointers and I was faster than any kid and my, you know, I had handles and I had all these things. And he said, just looked at me up and down, too short, move, move it on. So, uh, you know, I joined the football team, I joined the baseball team, played soccer. But I remember Mr. Hamlin, and I'm probably still carrying around that grudge. Is he right? No. <laughs> okay, good. I just want – I didn't know if there's a redemption story. No. I mean, <laughs> I'm talking about just like holding on to things oh, right. that don't serve you, like this this grudge thing. Yeah. And that, you know, if we're still holding on to um, the failures that we've got, that we haven't buried it and forgotten it, that we, if we keep going back and trying to, you know – resurrect it, give it CPR, whatever it is. Like sometimes we just need to let it go. Well, it's lost its utility. That's why step three in my process is the most important part. It's the autopsy because the autopsy you can hold on to. Remember when you have a founder who's not cut out to be a CEO, even if it's an amazing idea, they they will be eclipsed by, uh, the idea will be eclipsed by the inadequacies or deficiencies of that founder, right? That's from a specific instance of failure, but I don't remember the instance anymore. I just remember the, the rule. Mm-hmm. So let the rule imprint 
but don't let the hit on your uh, ego imprint. I just was trying to make a point earlier. There is a level of, if you, anyone out there wants to be like a trillionaire, which I don't aspire to or whatever, know that, you know, they probably under index on self-awareness and ignore everything I'm saying. Yeah. <laughs> like they, they don't even process their, their, their failure. So what is your definition of success then? Personally now? Yeah. I'm scaling my wisdom, I think, the things I've learned and ameliorating suffering one-to-one. Like if you think of it, if I look at everything I've accomplished at this point um, and had the pleasure to do and be around and great experiences, like if I, what's one level higher, it's actually using all of that to soothe. That's how I define success. So the book is my attempt to scale what I'm doing one-to-one with people, unlocking people, maybe soothing. Uh, I think that's why I'm here. I think it's why I witnessed what I witnessed when I was a kid. I think it's why I've had two meetings with Pope Francis in the last you know, year and a half talking about migrants and refugees. It's, it's using my platform power money resources to ameliorate suffering. Again, and I'm no, I'm not like you know Mother Teresa or a saint. It's just it feels right. It speaks to me, and I think I have something to offer. Hopefully, that's what the book does. I mean, we were just sitting back, you know, <laughs> chopping it up, reminiscing about the good old days and all that. <laughs> you know, tracking my roots, where I came from, and where I'm going.